You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Very pleased to have a few members of Volgograd, Andrew, Jacek and Adam here in the studio today. They're playing at the Gasometer this Thursday night with Pugsley Buzzard. And um, thanks so much for coming in. A pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. I have to say thank you particularly to you, Jacek, because it's your birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> the news, yeah, the secret is out. Yes, uh, Yes, it is. That's the song they're going to be playing later. Mm. Happy birthday. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh, thank you. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't start the day in any other way. <laughs> is it your idea of a good birthday coming into a radio station? As I said, that's my first birthday present. I <laughs> hope there's more, many more to come. There will be. <laughs> so you've been um, together for a really long time. I think 12, 13 years you were formed back in the sort of 2004. How did it all begin for Volgograd? Um, w- well, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, Jacek and Adam, who are such crucial pieces of the puzzle, were the, were the last to join, actually. Hmm. But we... I sort of, yeah, I came back. I actually came back from a while living in Russia, and um, and and had this idea for this band to start this band. But it just seemed like sort of seemed like pie in the sky, like as if we'd be able to find the right singer for the group. But I got together a bunch of musicians that I that I already knew in in Melbourne, and um, and started looking at some songs, and then um, miraculously, the um, the right singer came along. Yatsek Common. We're about to start scouring the um, the Russian restaurants and things, looking for um, an yeah, old crooner. Some old crooner. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we didn't we didn't have to go that far. Right. How, how did you find Yatsek? Uh, well, Yatsek's a, f- a friend of a, 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 an old friend and colleague of a good friend of mine, uh, Natalia Novikova, who's a, who's a, an actor. She's and and Russian, and um, and she. She said, "You got to, you got to get Yatsek. He'd be perfect. He's your man." <laughs> yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah, she said to me, "You got to get those guys." <laughs> <laughs> she was the matchmaker. Well, were these songs that that you play in Volgograd? They're kind of old, um, kind of old style songs, as well as some from uh, sort of more recent times in in Russia's history. Were they songs that you sort of knew Yatsek at all? Some of them, yeah, and. Um, and Andrew brought a, a whole gold mine of of these uh, songs to our attention, and uh, so we've we scour through through many before before you know settling on on our next one. Um, but as you said, some some of them are quite you know, newer newer. Uh, newer part of the history of Russian music, like Leningrad uh, or Viktor Tsoi, they are all, you know. But the, so- the songs that you knew would have been, like the Vysotsky songs, for example, you would have known a few of them. And Yeah, yeah, Vysotsky yeah. was, was you know, a, a cult figure in mm. Poland uh, throughout the 70s, certainly. Mm. Are they still played on on the airwaves on on radio or anything like that in in Poland or in in Russia? These songs? Well, Vysotsky uh, songs particularly, because as I said, you know, he was a cult figure even then, and and now he's you know he's an incredible legend. So there's uh, they are very popular. In 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 their original form, you know, Vysotsky playing them, and and their their translations, uh, 
Polish versions of them are, are, are very popular as well. Some of them departing somewhat from you know, from its musical uh, original, uh, but also the other ones. You know, the songs. A lot of the songs, majority of the songs, in fact, that we Volgograd uh, perform are, come from from Odessa on the Black Sea, and, and some of them quite quite old. You know, turn early twentieth century, and. And a lot of these songs circulate in Poland as well, and, and often uh, um, collected into. You know, I've seen the theatre shows uh, a couple of years ago in Poland, uh, um, where a lot of the, the songs we perform were included as mm -hmm. well. In fact, but a lot of the other stuff is is, is actually kind of culturally compromised like what a lot of the songs that we play are considered not not just old-fashioned but just kind of uh embarrassing um for a lot of russians so they they, they um they hear what sort of repertoire we're doing and they're like why would you play that awful <laughs> stuff um and there might be there might be versions of it um sort of yeah newer versions being produced now that are It's just for a particular class of people who, who don't have a lot of prestige or, um, yeah, so it, sort of cultural cash. Is that why there might be a, a negative view of them? Because they're, they're old and, and came from quite an, an underclass of people? Is yeah. that a reason for it? Or? Yeah, that's, that, that would be the gist of it. It's always been basically music for, for criminals and taxi drivers and... Mm. and, um, <laughs> and yeah, I remember the also... Unemployed. And the drunk. I remember also um, <clears throat> as I was growing up in the communist regime back in Poland uh, in uh, 80s and uh, yeah, 70s and 80s. Um, we were, you know, we were studying Russian language compulsory up to when I was in high school. And um, when we were listening to uh, Vysotsky stuff or um, things which are pre-Vysotsky, pre it was for us like uh, kind of uh, rebelling against the regime a bit mm. because that was listening to Russian in a completely different light, listening to Russian that came from the gutters uh, from underneath and which was also uh, sort of rotting away uh, the regime from inside in a way. So Um, that was for us kind of a, you know, um, the, the smell of <laughs> Russian gutters was the smell of some sort of some sort of weird version of smell of freedom in a way. Mm. You know? hope. It was kind of like yeah, bringing hope, showing us yes, it's rotting away the inside, you know. <laughs> so it's not going to be all that bad all, all this time. Mm. It's going to break apart someday soon. Mm. So that was for us this kind of hope. Yeah, was giving us and, hope. That's and that's and uh, that's why why this music is so great as well is because it was unofficial and it was and it was underground that it was relatively untouched by by the state apparatus mm. so there's there was not some of these some of this music is kind of more, was more along the pop side of things like particularly made so the Uchosov songs and things that were sort of packaged as this sort of pseudo jazz thing back in the 30s maybe 20s and 30s but um, uh, it's 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 the closest you can get to sort of an authentic expression of of, of sort of traditional russian culture that's not sort of compromised by mm. um by academic approaches or or propaganda things like that and, and you've performed in and around european russia and poland have you or? We, we haven't made it to russia yet we had a, we had a gig but then we we had to pull out the last minute because mm. we just couldn't figure out the logistics of it we played in poland that was good 
Because I want. Well. How, how does it go down in a country that I guess can can understand the lyrics and might have a sense of, of the history? Because it's got such rhythm. It's such kind of um, I don't know. I guess fun music for anyone, any Australian audience to to listen to. You can easily sort of get into it. But for people who understand the the history of it, do you get a, a very different response? Yeah, well, um, I don't know. Do you guys want to talk about the Polish response? Maybe? It's a little... Um, I think it's divided into into uh, generations a little. And, you know, my generation, Adam's generation, even, even they would have mixed responses. Those who would recognise its anti-authoritarian mm. value would uh, appreciate it too. And, and others just, you know, throw it into the... <laughs> Uh, disliked uh, Russian stuff bag uh, and new generations you know those who grew up in, in free Poland and you know, the, the young Polish you know, groovers just um, enjoy it as as many people all over Europe do on uh, you know this exotic uh, in a way uh, from from elsewhere and from another era, mm-hmm. uh, kind of music. Uh, is is there a sort of a ref- reflexive sort of um, do if if poles hear the Russian language, would they have an sort of instant response to it, one way or the other? Um, no, not all of them. <laughs> We're sort of hopping into generalizations mm-hmm. here, but but um, a, a popular sentiment would be to to really love Russian culture and yet um, you know historically we are conditioned <laughs> I think, <laughs> to I have think problems with the that, Russians that I had this question when we were going to, to Europe as well um, uh, you know what how is it going to work we're bringing sort of as we say in Polish trees back to the forest you know what I mean Calls to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's how. how what, what's so attractive about Australian band bringing Russian stuff back to uh, Eastern Europe or Europe? And I, th- when I, when I, uh, when we started playing in Germany, for example, I realized um, that the actual value in what we're doing is uh, that it's mostly Australian musicians doing their own take musically um, on uh, that stuff all these uh, covers of these traditional songs um, and <clears throat> it brings out that fun part of, of those songs you know there's a lot of depth and suffering and, and mm. also funny stuff in, in those songs but but through through throwing it uh, onto the table with so many talented uh, musicians from here from Melbourne I think we managed to, to make it um, really a, a playful version of it and it, it refreshes the genre I think mm. you know it's sort of Yep. And I think also having like those, we're sharing a mic by the way, me and Adam are <laughs> getting cosy here, um, that having layers, but you do make it fun because you kind of dress up as, oh, well, you do, mm. and you have an outfit. And is that part of it, of part of the fun is to actually, you know, you're performing in character yeah. in, as well. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, um, yeah. it's, it's kind of um, uh, also our background, the second and mine in, in theatre, um, uh, different kinds of theatre as well, and also. How I got in this band, I got through two musicians who worked with me on a big uh, outdoor theatre piece. Renato, who is our drummer, is also very involved in the theatre. So we, from the beginning, we thought, you know, um, there's no way we just stand on that stage mm. and deliver the songs like <laughs> as we are in the studio, <laughs> invisible. 
there's going to be a lot of action. So, there, you know, there's, there's stuff happening on stage. There's a lot of interaction between us. There's uh, always a bottle of vodka on stage. Necessary. Um, so um, it's a big party for us, you know, every time we, we meet. Maybe that's why we're so long together for mm. such a long time because we always have a lot of fun and we try to um, try to keep that fire going. Mm. Because of the vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I also, it might be worth pointing out that, was, that we have, uh, although we haven't played in Russia, we've played, we've done quite a few gigs to primarily Russian audiences. Yeah. Uh, mm. and, one, and funnily enough, one that I can remember is, is in Frankfurt. Remember the gig we did in Frankfurt? <laughs> Where there were heaps of Russians there. <laughs> yeah. And it was okay. wild. <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> crazy. There were actually, that was, I think, maybe the only time that we've had underpants thrown at us. On <laughs> wow. <laughs> in, in a good way, though? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was a well, brilliant, any, I don't, yeah, it was brilliant, brilliant precise. Any, I don't care. Any underpants. It could have been dirty boxer shorts. It still would have been great. It could be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now, but also recently in um, the last few years in Melbourne, we've, it's, it's taken a long time, but we've gradually built a, a Russian audience as well. So mm. south of the river. Most of our gigs have been north of the river, but um, most of the Russian-speaking population in Melbourne is is um, south of the river, and uh, we've been having some really great gigs down there mm. to 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 primarily uh, Russian-speaking audiences. Not maybe not primarily, but disproportionately, and they and they really really appreciate it. And some of the the other songs you play, in addition to those kind of older traditional songs, are from the Perestroika era in Russia, which mm-hmm. was when the sort of Communist Party was reforming under Gorbachev. Can you talk a little bit about that that period and what sort of music was was around then? Yeah, well, that we, I, I guess we've probably moved away a little bit from that material. But one one song that we do, for example, is called uh, um, Well, Black Flag. We don't do anymore, mm. and that's probably not. It's it's that's relatively obscure. But Mama Anarchia was is which means um, we, we call it Anarchy is my mother, mm. um, and this was kind of a kind of a pastiche of, of a Sex Pistols song um, made by this band called Kino who were fronted by Victor Tsoi who was a really um, prominent rock star in the 80s and he died in a, in a car accident in 1990 I think and he was kind of like he was a massive symbol for Russian alternative rock in the 80s and, and rock and roll was really um, at the forefront of political change in Russia in the 80s and really emblematic of it um, and it was in a way it was so tied to to political change that when 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 the Soviet Union finally fell rock music almost lost its meaning mm. uh, because there was there was nothing to nothing to fight against anymore um, but um, at the same time um, it was it was political enough just to play rock music you didn't actually have to have political content mm. in your lyrics just just playing rock music was enough to be um explicitly political um so yeah it was quite a significant thing and, and it's interesting playing. with like pussy riot for example coming out and doing very explicitly political songs and, and acts you know using music as a, as a vehicle for for activism more recently mm. Yeah, there's a, there is a, there is a history of it for sure. Mm. Mm. And Yatsek, I was just thinking when you were saying about you know the the writer of that song, and that can convince people that they you know were a mountaineer or a criminal or whatever. <laughs> and I was thinking of um, the last performance I saw you do as an actor in in Jack Irish. I saw it on telly recently, <laughs> and right. you and the Philippines and Mindanao. And we see we hear that a lot more on our on our news service now because of what's happening in the Philippines. But did you do you immerse yourself? in the kind of politics of those kinds of roles as well? Is it a similar...? Well, as much as you can, uh, and it varies from role to role. Um, yeah, we we, sh- we actually did not shoot on Mindanao because it's too dangerous. I didn't, th- I didn't think so, but you know. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it's 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 often you know per, perfunctory <laughs> knowledge, um, and and uh, you kind of continue in your own time because often things you know s- stimulate your curiosity and. Um, but yeah, that's 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 part of the uh, profession. And uh, are you working on any productions at the moment? We can look out for. Um, no, is <laughs> the short answer. No, uh, uh, no, no, I'm not. I think we were hoping to to focus on on, on music around around this time. Uh, this plans sketched to to get together and maybe do some recording. Yeah, record an album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so oh you're you're sh- you're filming the the gig coming up on That's Thursday. Right. Yeah, we're going to be there's, it's going to be it's going to be videoed and um, and we're going to do a proper proper recording of it. It's going to be a pretty pretty good gig. Uh, Zulia's going to come and do some do a song or two with us as well. It's mm. pretty exciting. Um, yeah, as I said, long time between drinks. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't. <laughs> it's been a, been a while since Zulia mm. sang with us. Yeah. And, and so, what's the plan after this? Have you got other sort of gigs in the pipeline, or is it straight down to recording after this one? That's a good question. Very good question, Dylan. Um, we have no gigs booked. Mm. Yeah, we have no gigs booked. But, yeah, we'll be recording an album and uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Sounds great. Great. Well, mm. thanks so much for coming in. And best of luck with the show and um, we'll look out for the video. Great. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. And over the past decade, one and a half million households, businesses and public buildings have invested over $8 billion in solar PV systems. And as battery technology matures, it's likely the love affair with solar will continue and the technology is likely to further disrupt the way we do electricity in Australia. And uh, rooftop solar is pretty much the good news story of Australia's slowly but surely transition to renewable energy. But while there's lots of exciting things to talk about, there's also challenges ahead especially with regards to the way big energy companies deal with the thousands of dispersed little mini generators. And Claire O'Rourke is the National Director of Solar Citizens, a group that promotes community-scale solar, and they run a a sort of a marginal seats-type campaign in the federal election to try and galvanise votes around solar. And it's really good to have you with us, Claire, and I suppose it's been um, quite a while now since the federal election, but I wonder um, if you can sort of tell us about that campaign you ran and whether we do have a new... like um, Con, con, um, sort of group of constituents in Australia that can be galvanised around solar. Well, thanks for having me on, um, Kalia and Dylan. Um, yeah, well, it's certainly been interesting for us to watch a growing constituency of folks who have solar on their rooftop. As you mentioned, there's one and a half million um, households, and it might surprise some of your listeners to hear that in the um, 121 of the 150 uh, electorates in federal electorates around Australia there are enough uh, people of voting age who have solar on their rooftop that could decide the outcome in those electorates. So um, we're an independent community organisation. We uh, don't tell people how to vote, but we certainly spent a lot of time through the federal election working in a number of seats to raise awareness about the benefits of solar and also to demonstrate to the candidates for election that they should be very mindful of the interests of solar owners and also those people who want to go solar and experience all the benefits that clean energy brings. And I suppose we're seeing in the way that the Senate is made up now and also in the House of Reps that people can be elected on sort of single issue or a small number of issues that are important to to groups of people. And do you feel like solar could become one of those single issues in future? 
Well, certainly we did see a political party um, run candidates in the Senate um, called the Renewable Energy Party. So the very fact that a, a, a single-issue party around renewables emerged and, you know, didn't get an enormous amount of the vote and didn't get enough um, votes to secure a seat in the Senate. But the fact that there are people organising around that issue politically um, and running candidates is a, is a good sign that um, we're not the only organisation that's um, noticed this this emerging constituency um, that's out there. You know, people go solar for a number of reasons. It's not just a, you know, a bunch of um, rusted on greenies, even though there's lots of people who are very deeply committed to clean energy and um, the environment, and that's why they go solar. But mo- for the most part, people who go solar on, are on low to median um, incomes. So, you know, the most prevalent uptake of solar is in low to median income suburbs. It's not um, wealthy folks or, you know, latte sippers of the champagne set, as they were described by the former um, Treasurer of Queensland. So it's just ordinary folks who see the cost benefit and, and go solar and make that investment to help bring down um, rising power bills. And that really interested me, Claire, from, from reading uh, a report that you recently put out, that those areas where solar uptake has been strongest has been in often regional, rural areas and, and kind of the outer suburbs outside of the major cities. And, and I kind of would have assumed naively, I suppose, that it would have been the inner city electorates where solar uptake had been strongest. Yeah, well, there's a few challenges with, um, you know, inner city residents in terms of going solar. And, you know, obviously there's higher density housing, which means that people will be living in apartments or or rent. There's more renters in those inner city areas. Also, there's um, a lot more shaded buildings. Um, So out in those kind of fringe areas of of cities and also in regional and rural areas, there's a whole lot of sun. Um, You know, we're the sunniest continent on the planet. And so that's one of the reasons where people, you know, see that the decision to go solar makes sense. Um, also, people who are, you know, not necessarily in those inner city areas um, have really grappled with those cost of living issues. So in the 10 years from 2003 to 2013, power prices went up by more than 70% for um, on average nationwide and gas um, bills went up by 54% in the same period. So um, that was a really significant issue that drove people towards solar and that um, also the cost of the technology has fallen dramatically by you know more than 80% over the last 15 years. So you know those those two reasons were main drivers for the uptake of solar across the country but then also we had a whole lot of um, federal and state government policies that you know encourage people to go solar as well so there's the renewable energy target which still operates um, nationally and that helps folks with the cost of installing a solar system that's under 100 kilowatts Um, and also there's been state-based feed-in tariff schemes as well like where people get a price or you know for exporting their solar to the grid and there's lots so there's lots of motivations um or, uh, for and sort of encouragement for people to take up solar pv and and i understand in some areas there's sort of up to 60 percent of households have solar systems and um, rooftop solar but i wonder if that's changing now as we've got such a, a large group of people 1.5 million sort of households and businesses with pv on their roof whether the kind of sweeteners from government are starting to to taper away now claire well, some of those um feed-in tariff schemes have tapered um off in some areas and in some places we've managed to uh halt the rollback of those um feed-in tariffs which is certainly something we managed to work on successfully in western australia a couple of years ago 
But I think it's really important to remember, and we outlined this in our State of Solar report, that more than um, $8 billion of people's own money outside of those those schemes, the federal and state ones I mentioned, um, have been invested by ordinary householders that have, in terms of going solar. You know, and this has delivered 19,000 jobs nationally. It's saved, you know, $4.4 billion in household electricity bills. It's saved 24 million tonnes of carbon pollution. And, you know, it's just really... And we are the single per capita. We have the biggest uptake of solar in the world. Um, and it's a great test market for the next way, the way that our energy system is going to transition. And I think uh, you mentioned earlier the bill savings. Is this something that really is going to continue happening with solar PV, even if um, the sort of government incentives aren't there and the feed tariffs aren't quite as good as they used to be, Claire? Will people still save money if they invest in solar? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, um, even if you're not on a, a you know, guaranteed um, feed-in tariff scheme or solar bonus scheme, they, they were called, if you went solar today, you would still save a substantial amount on your um, energy bills. You know, I don't personally. I don't experience a, uh, one of those solar bonus things myself. But our power bill has dropped by 20, 25 percent since we installed our two kilowatt system a couple of years ago. So, you know, the payback period is what is how people describe it. So, the payback period has reduced substantially from around eight to ten years for an average system. About it seven or eight years ago down to about four four years, depending on the size of your system. So um, there's been great advances in the technology, but also in terms of efficiencies that has driven down the cost of, of um, getting those panels onto rooftops. We're so, speaking... Yeah, definitely still a benefit to keep going. Sorry. <laughs> We're speaking with Clara Rourke, the National Director of Solar Citizens, all about the solar uptake across Australia and also the campaign they um, they uh, put out uh, around the most recent federal election. And you mentioned just before, Claire, that there's been sort of a large number of jobs attached to uh, the solar industry and the uptake of solar. And as we see more people taking up this technology and, and having solar panels on their sort of residential properties and so on, can we be sure that those jobs are going to be secure, that that job market is sustainable? Um, I think, yeah, absolutely. The way that it is sustainable uh, in terms of a jobs market is that you'll have... Solar panels will last about 20 to 25 years and we've still got a lot of um, rooftops, or millions of rooftops that could still um, take a solar system. So there's a still, you know... First off, installing. Um, there's still a big market there to be developed. There's also an incredibly large market in commercial um, solar systems, those bigger sizes that go on your supermarket or Bunnings um, and other warehouses and things like that. And then um, you've also got kind of replacement as the you know first wave of uh, solar installations age because you know they do last about. 20, 25 years before they start to lose efficiency for the most part. So there'll be a replacement market. Then we've got the battery storage market and we're seeing, a, you know, battery, lithium-ion battery storage um, prices drop monumentally around the world and that's going to continue with the um, launch and of the Tesla Gigafactory over in the States. And people love the battery technology, don't they? Like, it, it's yeah. something that is really capturing imaginations. And I wonder if people are sort of holding off now on sort of their PV purchases, waiting for the battery technology to catch up and, and make it a, a sort of an economic, a, a economically smart thing to do to have both um, PV and, and storage and still be connected to the grid. 
Mm, there's very high interest in battery storage technology, which will allow for the, like another wave of jobs and more specialist jobs to be developed as well. Um, but certainly, um, people are ready to go with battery storage. We're just um, the market is, um, you know, two to five years of being, you know, full. Uh, cranking at pop speed, depending on which analysts you're talking to. But um, I think we've all seen from other incredibly game-changing technologies, like you know, mobile phones are a good example, that um, you couldn't necessarily predict the popularity of the technology until it really takes off. And when it does, when we reach that tipping point, I think we'll be racing ahead when it comes to um, battery storage. Yeah, and I wonder... around Australia. Yeah, I know, and, and people do... Get, I mean, look, as soon as um, Tesla launches anything new, it's, it seems to be, you know, it's big news and there's a lot of editorial written about it and the like. And, and I wonder, um, Claire, r- with regards to the energy grid and, and how it's responding, and we've got a, a new minister, Josh Frydenberg, who's, um, you know, taking in environment as well. And is it... Do we need to change the way that our electricity networks and grids work when it comes to these smaller systems and and the growing number of smaller systems? Yeah, well, our electricity grid is um, governed by a whole set of uh, rules. So there's a whole lot of technology, but then there's a whole whole lot of rules. And we um, have outlined in a project called the Homegrown Power Plan that we developed with GetUp um, we looked at what needed to be done to both, you know, do we need to fix the technology itself and then also do we need to reform the energy market, the national energy market, which covers most um, electricity users in Australia, the eastern seaboard states. And, yeah, absolutely, the rules are one of the, uh, are a bigger blockage than the technology because there's one rule that governs all of the other rules and um, regulatory bodies that sets how our energy system works and at the moment, there's no um, provision within the national electricity objective, the one rule that rules them all, to say that you need to include environmental benefits or affordable bills. Um, and so we've um, redrafted that rule, and we think there's, you know, there's a great case for that to be taken up. So if, imagine if we had the ability for people to trade their electricity like they're bidding for, on eBay, you know, if they're able to use the electricity system a bit more like the internet and if you have millions of homes with battery storage throughout the grid then we've got an incredible backup system that we can access so we can have clean energy 24 hours a day and take the pressure off peak times when everyone's you know turning on their air conditioners um or you know getting dinner ready in the evening so and it's quite compelling it's quite compelling what you say and i wonder what the incumbents are thinking about this kind of vision for the future claire oh there's an absolute like groundswell of excitement from the community and that's kind of why we exist you know we've um, help to, to build that and drive the necessary transition to 100% renewable power uh, by 2030. And we need to do that to create a really safe, um, healthy and clean um, future for all of us. But what we're really concerned about is that there's still some policy areas where there is um, rollback signalled by the federal government and also we're not moving this um, ambition all that this transition fast enough it needs to be orderly it needs to be planned but it also needs to be swift if we're going to do what needs to be done and so we're really looking to minister frydenberg and to um all our politicians who are representing us in federal and state parliaments to really take the lead on this we've seen great um you know advances from the um, act in south australia and victoria most recently on setting a um a really you know, flagship renewable energy targets and they're aggressively pursuing them. 
Um, but, you know, in the federal realm, we've got no plan for a renewable energy target post-2020. And the Australian Renewable Energy Agency that provides really important start-up grant funding um, is set to lose um, more than a billion dollars in funding um, if legislation passes through the Senate later this year. And it's interesting, isn't it, Claire, that, yeah, like um, the next election we've got, you know, probably, um, if it runs its full term, three years, and it sounds like there is a lot of community interest. And I suppose people are getting smarter when it comes to their their sort of role now as energy generators. So, um you think they'll be uh, watching this space with regards to a stronger campaign from from solar citizens and other interested parties for the next election? Oh, we'll certainly be campaigning every day between now and the next election for that transition to 100% renewables. But um, I think we'll see a lot more homes with solar and a lot more people um, going ahead and making that um, you know leap into clean energy. Um, and all our politicians will have to do is follow. It's, it's, um, now's really the opportunity. It's a very small window of time to take the lead and get all the policy settings right so we can, um, have a really good transition that also protects workers that, you know, that could work for declining industries. Mm. That work for coal, coal, coal mining particularly and, um, and coal fired power generation. Those workers need support to transition. Those communities need to take the lead on, um, how they can, you know, protect their thriving and thrive their communities as well. But yeah, we're, um, we would like to see some leadership on that from the, um, federal government and we're not seeing enough yet. But we're, we're hopeful that we will. Thanks so much. It sounds like someone's buzzing you there in the background. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there and we'll hopefully... Oh, we can, yeah, busy day. Um, thanks for talking with us today. That's uh, Claire O'Rourke, National Director of Solar Citizens. Talking about Slut Walk next, victim blaming around sexual assault where victims are criticised for making themselves a target for how they dress or act is something that's still really relevant, not just in Australia but around the world. And each year, Slut Walk is held in the centre of this city and one of the organisers is Jessamy Gleeson. And it's really great to have you with us, Jess. And I think um, those, you know, it's been going, what, five years? Um, six slightly, years. Six yeah, years. this is our sixth year now. And yeah. so, you know, for those that haven't heard about Slut Walk, maybe um, tell us what, where Who it's come from. Who are we and what Who do we are do? you? All that stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. So we uh, we started in um, Toronto. That was the first Slut Walk in 2011. And it came out of comments made by a local police chief that said that women, he said it to a university group of women and said that women shouldn't get uh, dressed like sluts if they uh, wanted to avoid being raped or assaulted. So... So, uh, and it, it was a classic example of uh, slut shaming and victim blaming. This idea that women are responsible for uh, their assaults or rapes, and that they can somehow avoid this kind of stuff by dressing or behaving in a different kind of manner. And slut walk, uh, the first one, obviously started in Toronto, and from there it spread internationally. And the Melbourne one has been going as long as the Toronto one has, and it's one of the strongest outside of Toronto as well. Yeah, I read that the, the Melbourne slut walk in 2011 was the, the largest outside of Toronto. Yeah, yeah, it is, which I think says a lot about Melbourne and uh, the Melbourne feminist scene that it's you know, that we have such a strong presence. Mm. And does it say a lot about victim shaming in our city as well? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, potentially, that everyone's so aware of it and that it's something that uh, we deal with locally. Yeah, I think so. I think it says a lot, yeah, A, for the number of feminists that we have in Melbourne and B, that this kind of stuff is still relevant and it happens in Toronto and in Melbourne and elsewhere as well. And so that that comment from the police chief, is it uh, the concern that it's happening at that level but also sort of filtering down through the community that these 
those kinds of attitudes of, of blaming a victim for what happens to them mm. uh, is in, endemic in our culture. Would you go that far? Yeah, I would. I would say it's present on all different kinds of levels. Obviously, it's highly concerning when it's the police saying this stuff because of the role that they play in law enforcement. But the casual day-to-day comments that you get everywhere else as well, and you see it time and time again, not just in what police say, but in what people on the streets say, uh, what people that you go to high school or university say, this kind of stuff as well. So yeah, I would say it is present on every level and it's a problem outside of just the police force. And something that I guess can be quite subtle as well in, in media reporting potentially in the sorts of focus on, on articles that are around either mm-hmm. domestic violence or violence against women. We spoke with Tarang Chaw earlier this year about our watchers report all around media reporting of, of violence against women and it found quite alarming um, findings that that a lot of media reporting still focuses on women's appearance, whether they're intoxicated at the time mm. of a particular attack. Yeah, it's something that I have uh, protested a lot on Twitter, both as Slutwalk Melbourne and myself individually, and the media does have a huge problem with it. I think our watch do good stuff. They have put out a lot of media guidelines from what I can remember talking about that stuff, but it is the responsibility of journalists as well to pick that up and run with it, and that isn't always the case. It's still present. I called, you know, journalists out on this you know multiple times earlier this year so it's still very much a problem can you tell us some of the sort of examples of what people might have seen in the in the sort of media in in recent times or um you know examples that you've come across of of exactly what 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 you yeah, mean classic by, examples yeah, of classic examples because i think it helps people to sort of understand um what it is that sort of gets so many people out onto the street mm, completely so there was an example that i talked about last year when i came in to talk about Slutwalk melbourne and it was the example of the local mayor in albury uh slut-shaming a uh, victim of assault that had happened up there. So the mayor of Aubrey had come out and said that this girl shouldn't uh, be have been walking out late at night if she wanted to avoid getting assaulted. The examples that I can think about recently in the media are all the examples of private school boys. So there have been three different cases now with uh, private schools and boys are gathering together pictures of girls and slut-shaming these girls because they had images taken of them in or had images maybe perhaps stolen of them and then shared a around throughout different uh, boys' phones and shamed as a result of those images. Yeah, so those are two, you know, little examples. And I, I mean, going out on the street is one thing, but what what else can be done? I mean, when it comes to school children and the, the great harm that that, that does to another, mm. another person, but also what, you know, how can we make sure that young men... Mm don't act in that way. For starters, getting rid of the... It's very complex to say get rid of the idea of slut, but really try and break down with any young men in your life what they understand to be the word slut and why can't women have ownership over their own or girls to have ownership of their own sexuality in the same way boys can but the the important thing is also education as well and that's obviously needed in high school as much as it is outside of high school and going on from there into university so the idea of talking getting into high school and talking to young men young women and people of you know that exist anywhere on that gender binary of what the idea is to um, break down the idea of slut and why it's not appropriate to call someone that 
Yeah. And that, that I understand, was a, a large reason for, for naming Slutwalk. Slutwalk was, yeah. was using that word and, and reclaiming in that way to, to raise those issues. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, my grandmother's finally accepted the idea that I do a Slutwalk each year. It's not quite her cup of tea, but the idea that there are different waves of feminism, different understandings of this, it is a reclamation process. Um, I said a while ago, I wrote an article a while ago that you don't just walk into Mordor and you don't just break down the word slut. And it's true, it's not as simple as to just reclaim that word slut it's really complex and it's an ongoing conversation that we have with different members of the community because different people can reclaim the word slut and do that quite easily whereas other people have more of a problem with it but we also invite anyone that doesn't want to call themselves a slut to still come along if they would like to they're more than welcome to you don't have to call yourself slut a slut to come along to slut walk you're quite welcome to hold a sign that says i'm not a slut and you might be there participating with other people that say you know i am a slut and that's okay and what about, uh, you know, technology? You, you mentioned that, um, you know, that is one way of, mm. of shaming people. Uh, but I am, and, you know, we, we hear about what's happening in the media as well. So there are ways that we can come across this kind of behaviour. But I imagine a lot of the kind of shaming that happens of, of women is not online and is not in the media that it's actually day-to-day behavior yeah, completely and it's hard it's easy to capture it's easier to capture when it's online or through various forms of technology because it's there it's written it's in front of you on a screen it's harder when someone calls you that on the street and there's no good way to kind of put as much of a face to it if it's an anonymous stranger but then with that kind of stuff again you might go on and you might talk about it online so i guess creating that awareness and there've been different feminist campaigns talking about this stuff online like the everyday sexism campaign bringing that stuff to light so if there are things that happen to you day to day just bringing that sort of awareness to other people around you having those conversations saying yeah I was called a slut when I was walking down the street wearing my tracky pants and a hoodie you know making other people aware that it is a real problem and it happens no matter what you're wearing and so this is the sixth year of of Melbourne slut walk coming up on the third of September yeah third of September has the the participants has that changed at all over the years and the number of people the types of people who are getting involved? It's, it's waxed and waned. Definitely the first year was huge, but there were probably an equal number of people there that were just uh, gawkers or people that were there just out of interest to see what the hell was going on. And that um, from there, we've had a more sort of strong, solid contingent that has rocked up every year and has grown. So the last two years have seen it grown again, which is really exciting for us. I mean, we would do the march whether there were 50 people or 5,000 people there. It would happen for us regardless because it's really important for us to do it. But it is exciting to see that other people can come along each year. And what about su- supporters from police or, or MPs and that sort of thing? Has that has that evolved over the past it sort of has. Five, six we're, years? We're completely non-political. So we, although we may receive support from different political parties, we're not politically aligned in any way, shape or form. And we think that's really important. In terms of support from the police, there's been a police presence at every march, but you would get that at every march, regardless of what it is. So again, we haven't received any formal support from the police outside of just up and making sure that we're protected on the day. And do you uh, sense a change at all in, in attitudes and understanding since the, the march has begun? Yeah, I do. It's exciting. It's um, And it's nice because I come in here each year and talk about Slut Walk and each year um, the questions get better and better and it's be- it often goes beyond just, you know, what is Slut Walk and into the sort of conversations that we're having now. And I mean the fact that you can see terms like slut shaming and victim blaming in the media now. So, you know, journalists will talk about how this kind of stuff is actually happening 
compared to back in 2011, that kind of stuff just didn't happen. So I think there is an increasing awareness, which is really exciting for us to see. Well, that's really great. Well, um, all the best on, on Saturday, this, the 3rd of September. So Thanks. it's a couple of weeks away and uh, mm-hmm. and there's no dress code. No dress code, not at all. And <laughs> um, just bring yourselves and it's 1pm and exactly. uh, it's sort of gathering at the State Library of Victoria and, mm. and marching down Swanston Street by the sounds of it. So yeah. uh, it sounds like a celebration and, and all the best and uh, it sounds like you'll be back again next year. <laughs> well, Jessamy. I'll see you then. <laughs> Jessamy Gleeson, she's one of the organising committees and um, um, team members, sorry, um, of, of Slut Walk. And uh, you can find them on Facebook quite easily and a lot of details on there. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.